members of the council, guests and friends, uh, on behalf of our Board of Trustees, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you uh, this evening. Um, none of you have to be told about Washington traffic, and so, so, so I won't give you a, a further description. Well, in any case, our topic tonight you know. Dr. Anthony is known to many of you from previous presentations here. He's averaged one here every three years or so, and uh, we're delighted to have him, him back. He's, uh, his, his resume, by the way, is available on the table at the entrance. It's interesting reading for one who wants to see uh, the record of someone who has successfully dedicated, successfully and intensively dedicated a career uh, to, uh, in a way, uh, making the world a better place. He certainly is a, an expert on uh, relations in, in, uh, in the Middle East. He's uh, founded organizations which lead to cooperation in education in commerce and other areas with the Middle East. Um, he's respected within the United States government. He serves on committees at the State Department. Uh, he's uh, taught at the defense universities. Um, and he's highly regarded within the Arab world. He's the only American who, since its founding in 1981, has been invited to all of the uh, coordinating the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council's uh, ministerial and heads of state uh, summits, uh, which is a remarkable thing. And he has been knighted by the King of Morocco and received numerous other awards from uh, respectful uh, Arab states. And as I say, his positions that he's held in the United States government continue to be uh, important uh, and uh, uh, em emphasize the regard in which he's, he's held. Um, the uh, task tonight before him, of course, you know. Um, I should add perhaps uh, just a comment uh, further. Uh, he's, a pub he's published uh, three books. He's edited one. He's written numerous articles. He's a uh, product of the VMI. I was remarking to Mr. Roach earlier that he was introduced by uh, George Collins when George Collins headed T. Rowe Price here. They were classmates at, at VMI. Uh, John, by the way, was president of his class at VMI four years in a row and, uh, uh, and chaired the uh, governing uh, group his senior year at VMI. Uh, he uh, received a master's degree from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service with distinction, and his PhD is from the Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he taught starting from the time that he was still a, a student uh, for, another, for almost another decade. He's taught at other institutions, uh, University of Virginia, he's taught at uh, uh, Penn, uh, University of Texas, as I mentioned before, several of the, uh, the military uh, institutions. So he brings to us uh, a long period of study, participation, and expertise, all of which is held in high regard. Uh, to make things easy, there's a copy of his resume, as I said, by the door, and it's, uh, it's wonderful reading. In any case, it's my great pleasure to present to you Dr. John Duke Anthony. Thank you, Dr. Bird. It's great to be back again, and I don't know exactly uh, what the draw is. 
Um, it's as though it's, one is uh, enrolled in a university from which there's no possible graduation on this topic. <laughs> Uh, and only on the best of days can one get uh, a murky and complete, and one is always having to go to night school, stay after school, and uh, summer school. Uh, it's also always a pleasure to uh, come to the podium uh, with, after, before uh, Dr. Frank Bird, uh, the foundation that I'm privileged to head uh, has uh, grassroots supporters and contributors, activists, in a network all throughout the United States. And it has been our privilege <clears throat> from the beginning to work with some uh, two-thirds of uh, America's nearly nine, nearly 100 World Affairs Councils. And the Baltimore Council on Foreign Affairs is, is in the top three of all of those that we have worked with uh, year in and year out. Your presence here this evening is a tribute not only to your own quest for knowledge and understanding, and for cutting-edge information and insight, but uh, to the quality and effectiveness of the management and the staff and the supporters and the contributors that have provided the, the staying power for this organization. I don't say these things uh, lightly. Uh, this is my 50th year of trying to make sense out of the region and, <laughs> and uh, my country's relationship with it and its uh, relationships with us. Now, in the limited time that we have, I thought it would be of uh, possibly some interest and value to provide a degree of background and context uh, for the discussion uh, period, I hope, that will ensue and to stimulate your questions and hopefully provoke you. And uh, I'm, I'm aware that uh, these issues that pertain to Arabs and Muslims and Middle Easterners are often on the edge of people's sleeve in terms of their emotions. <clears throat> We're but uh, blocks away from uh, the Holocaust Museum here, which is its own fitting testimony uh, so that people will not forget uh, the centrality of this particular region, its issues, its topics, its challenges, its aspirations, its needs, its concerns, its interests, its legitimate goals. Uh, that pertain to everything that that museum uh, represents, represented, and strives uh, to have Americans never forget with regard to uh, how this particular uh, region is of importance, not just to people here in Baltimore, uh, and not just to people in the eastern part of the United States, but throughout the United States of America and the world beyond. And so I salute and commend those who've taken the initiative, reached into their wallets and their pocketbooks uh, to uh, provide an institution like that, uh, to provide educational programs, projects, events, and activities that might not otherwise uh, be offered uh, to the coming generation of America's uh, specialists in regional and international affairs. Now, as I mentioned, I would go from the general to the medial and to the uh, specific. Uh, there are those who talk about the macro and the micro. If I have anything conceptually to offer, it's uh, uh, perhaps that there is a, a medio uh, that's neither macro or, or micro. Uh, that is, as 
relevant and pertinent uh, and, and, and as usual a set of lenses or prisms uh, through which to uh, to learn as anything at the macro and the micro level. But first at the, at the macro level. When we talk about the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, they are not interchangeable. They're not like Eli Whitney's interchangeable parts. They're not indistinguishable from one another. They are distinguishable from one another. There are 22 Arab countries, for example, 28 Middle Eastern countries, 57 Islamic countries. That's if you're focusing at the state level or the governmental level. If you're talking about in terms of people, uh, per capita issues, we're talking about 1.6 uh, billion, 1.4 billion, 1.5 billion, take your own numbers of Muslims in the world. People uh, often think that Arabs and Muslims are interchangeable or indistinguishable from one another. Nothing could be further from the, from the truth. Uh, Arabs are at the most one-fifth of all of the world's Muslims. They are in the distinct uh, minority, contrary to what might be the image of some people who are generalists and just rely on what the media uh, would suggest. In terms of uh, sectarian issues of Sunni Muslims, Orthodox Muslims, Shia Muslims, the following, I think, is of in information of interest and should provide a lens for insight and understanding, if nothing else. For example, for more than the last 1,400 and a half, uh, uh, 14 and a half centuries, uh, the Shia, if one is charitable, rounding them off to the highest percentage of the aggregate would not be more than 15% of the total. Okay? And I mention that with a pause in my voice because this is one of the keyholes through which we tend to view the peoples of the region. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, people uh, view uh, North America through the keyholes of, let's just say, the Hispanics in America, who are 15% of, of America's inhabitants. Uh, we would uh, say that this is wrong, this is false, this is unfair, this would be deliberately misleading as such. Uh, so in all of these years, that 15%, and I'm being chargeable, uh, some would have it only around 8%, 10%, 12%, but I'll go with the 15% there, have not been able to augment their share of the totality, says something that should be educative and informative and enlightening and illuminating about some of the aspects of the, the issues here. If we look at it from a point of view of international organizations, the highest organization to which all Muslims in the world uh, uh, belong, at least through their governmental representatives, it is the Organization of Islamic Conference, founded in 1969 over the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, more specifically over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, over more specifically the question of Jerusalem within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There are 57 Islamic uh, uh, governments, members of that organization. Of the 57, 53 are headed by Sunni leaders and representatives. Only three are headed by Shia leaders and representatives, and one is from a third sect, Ibadi Muslims in Oman. When I first had the privilege of meeting Dr. Byrd, 
It had to do with 30 years ago when he was one of a delegation that went to the Sultanate of Oman uh, for a study visit. I believe it was his first uh, empirical educational exposure to that part of the Eastern Arab world on the ground. You, you've been the beneficiaries of that ever since. So those numbers should say something as well. Now in terms of resources here, uh, we uh, have a problem with energy uh, issues. Energy as a substance, energy as an issue, energy as a policy, energy as a rallying point, a frame of reference for people's judgments, assessments of politicians, of positions, of actions and attitudes of our government. This is an electrically charged issue. It so happens that we have but two and a half percent of all of the planet's known proven hydrocarbon fuels in terms of oil. The particular region that I'm focusing on this evening has 60% of the world's known proven resources. If you want to uh, understand how grave the implications of just this aspect of looking at the region of where we stand, where we stood, and where we headed, ponder the following. In the 1990s, it was useful to compare the United States and Saudi Arabia in terms of energy production. Both countries, most days, produce something around seven and a half million barrels a day of oil. But for the United States to get it, seven and a half million barrels a day, it, it came from 650,000 wells, each one driven by a pump, which was an additional uh, energy cost. Saudi Arabia got its seven and a half million barrels a day from fewer than 900 wells, none of which driven by a pump. All of theirs comes out of the ground through pressure from beneath. And when they find it, which is frequently, their challenge is to keep it in the ground. When we find it, which is seldom as, is to get it out of the ground there. The average production of a Saudi Arabian well, a Kuwaiti well, an Abu Dhabi well is 12,000 barrels a day. The average production of an American well is 14 barrels a day. Okay? It costs but a dollar, maybe a dollar and a half in some places where they haven't got their act quite yet together to produce a, a, a barrel of oil, 42 gallons in a barrel of oil and the price hovering around $100 a barrel for the last seven years gives you an idea of the economics of this and where we are positioned vis-a-vis -vis those geological realities. Nothing in that has anything to do with politics. Uh, this is a geological uh, uh, reality uh, that has its own implication and, and that has stubborn facts with those implications for America's positions and policies uh, towards the, the region. In terms of the traditional ways of thinking about power and position and privilege uh, with regard to the rest of the world, uh, I'm of an age, I'm young enough or old enough to remember being schooled where it was drilled in that the key factors are land, labor, and capital. But in terms of international power's definition, it had to do with the country's population, its size, 
uh, its uh, gross domestic product in terms of the economic prowess of that particular uh, uh, country, uh, and the degree uh, to which that country's government spent uh, money on uh, military issues uh, to defend itself, to project power, and to protect its own uh, national uh, interest. And nowadays, those are still useful prisms, lenses, frames of reference for knowledge and understanding, uh, but they are additional ones uh, th because those are no longer uh, sufficient or efficient. One would throw in now technology. We'll come back to that. One would throw in now government revenues. Uh, we'll come back uh, to that. One would throw in now the amount of monies or percentages of people's wealth and material well-being devoted to research and development, to science and technology. Uh, one would have to make reference to one's human resources, the number of people who have been educated and prepared to deal effectively, responsibly, representationally, successfully with the issues of the day. And so in this particular region, we have some good news going for us, but I'll come to that at the end. First, I'll touch on some of the negative aspects of this. Uh, we talk about this region in terms of two kinds of oil, turmoil, <laughs> and that other kind. Uh, we can talk about both of those this evening because they're, they're relevant here. We're talking about uh, images and self-images of philanthropy, of charity, of humanitarian, of kindness, of reaching out to share, and uh, the best of circumstances in terms of ideals and justice and passion and compassion anonymously uh, with the less fortunate of the world. Uh, we are undoubtedly the world's uh, most uh, robust and dynamic economy. Even the one that's like Avis uh, on the inside uh, lane uh, is, is, is behind us by multiples in the sense that uh, we are far ahead of China, our nearest close uh, rival. Uh, for example, if we have $14, $15 trillion in GDP each year, uh, China uh, would be lucky if it's down around 8 or, or $9 trillion. Uh, so we have no near competitor on that particular front. But in terms of foreign uh, economic assistance, many Americans were polled about 10 years ago, what do you think it is that we give to other people of our largesse? And many people with PhDs, albeit, said mm, 15, 20%, 20%, 20%, 25%. It is one-tenth of 1% 1 of our federal budget, okay? And so we are not way up there, despite the fact in our self-estimation we are, no one is more generous than we are. But these are the numbers, okay? And then if you look at it in terms of charity per capita, of the top 17 countries, we're 17th, okay? For each year that figures have been collected since 1954, Kuwait has every year been number one in two categories. Number one, as a percentage of their gross national product, what they produce in terms of revenue that they share with the less fortunate, they are number one each and every year since 1954. And also in terms of charity per capita, they're also number one 
uh, each and every year. On that scale, we're 17th of the top 17 for which figures uh, have been kept uh, there. With regard to international organizations, this region must be laced with countries, certainly on the Arab side, that are members of a dozen to 15 organizations that America is not a member of, and yet we're exposed in terms of our needs, our concerns, our interests, our aspirations, our legitimate uh, goals and objectives there. And so we're exposed uh, and hoping uh, that our friends, our partners, our working allies uh, will carry water for us. Uh, but you can ask, why should they? Why would they? In terms of our also being seen as the one country in the region that has anti-Americanism from Morocco to Muscat. That's west to east on your map there. In fact, the whole region doesn't even get on this map here. Uh, a few, few maps do show the whole region there. Or that's from east to west, north to south, Baghdad to Berbera. Or if you're into going angularity uh, directions from uh, Algiers to Aden, in Alexandria and Aleppo in between. Uh, in terms of that particular uh, aspect of looking uh, at the region, uh, we are seen from one end to the region as the number one country that has policies that are reviled. Even in countries that are friendly to us, whose governments return all of our phone calls there and who are part of the usness in international affairs, Jordan and Morocco, for example. Uh, something is wrong with that picture if that is consistently the findings of the Gallup poll and the Zogby polls and the Esposito polls and the uh, Chew, uh, uh, Pew Charitable Trust polls. One scientific survey after the other puts America in the lower 10 percentile in terms of people thinking positively, not about America as a country, that's not the issue. Not about Americans as people, that's not the issue, but about America's policies. We are seen as the Olympic champion of anti-democratic forces in the world's largest, most uh, relevant, uh, globally focused uh, international organization, the United Nations Security Council. Up until 1972, we never once used the veto. Since then, we have used it 75 times. We have used it more than 45 times uh, to thwart what otherwise would have been a 15 to 0 vote. Use it 14 to 1, and we are the one, the veto, uh, thwarting the democratic will, the peaceful democratic will of the other 14 members of the Security Council. Of the 75 times we've cast that veto, 45 times have been to protect uh, a small state at the eastern end of the Mediterranean uh, that is stood in more blatant and patent violation of the United Nations uh, Charter, international law, and United Nations Security Council resolutions than any other single country on the planet. And if that didn't seem like a typographical error, other things do. Uh, that we continue to provide a degree of financial subsidies and subsistence and, and elect, e economic assistance to a country that by the standard of most other countries in the world 
is well off. In other words, the per capita income of this small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean is the same as that of Great Britain, which receives not a penny from the United States. And the same country is the number one country in violation of America's laws on stealing America's classified information, including from companies within a 50-mile radius of Baltimore here. We're talking about the Lockheed Martins, the Raytheons, the Northrop Grumman's, and the like. Um, no other American ally that receives uh, contributions from the American taxpayer is known to be in such grave and gross violation of America's laws having to do with theft in our national security uh, secrets. This is tough going uh, for some of us uh, who wear patriotism on our sleeve and who go to work each day trying to promote and project and project the best in America's national interest and to tout the values of transparency and of democracy and of accountability and to have other people throw back in our face, where is the transparency? Where is the accountability? Where is the democracy uh, when people like Dr. Anthony cite these statistics that are not his statistics but are there for anyone and everyone uh, to see there? Uh, we're talking about a situation where there is indeed bad news for the United States. Uh, that is to say, the two major terrorists, uh, the 1993 World Trade Tower bombing and the 2001, uh, both of them uh, explained that the primary motivation uh, for what they did uh, had to do with America's policies uh, towards the eastern Mediterranean. For others since then, having to do with the strengthening and expanding of al-Qaeda and its extremist offshoots, uh, the same frame of reference has been given, but added to in terms of Iraq, where the phrase in the region is that America killed a country. And it's hard to conclude otherwise, to think that uh, uh, Iraq can be reconstituted uh, to what it was um, it is somewhat in the realm of wishful thinking there. And having to do with an American invasion of a country that had not attacked the United States, that was no threat to the United States, and that the American people were fed a, a bucket full of, of, of declaratory statements that under the microscope uh, proved to be untrue. I'm old enough or young enough to recall having said it on many a meeting where never once was the issue that of democratizing the region, of reconfiguring its governments uh, in terms of it uh, being uh, reasonable echoes or mirror-like images of that which we have in terms of our own uh, self-image. Uh, the, the real issues, the real drivers were something else, largely avoided by the mainstream American media, which we can talk about because in the region it is talked about. And while we continue to focus on the need to uh, democratize the region in terms of civil society, in terms of human rights, in terms of civil rights, in terms of a whole a host of other issues. Uh, and this takes up more space in, in our printed uh, literature than any other topic. I can say that in my exposure, in my experience, 
And this, I've been to the region maybe 300 times. This is my 50th year of trying to make sense out of the region. Those issues are no higher than number five on the pressing issues of the peoples of the region, whether rich or poor, big or small, new or old, or something in between on all three of those uh, standards of description and, and measurement there. Uh, the major issues, the four top issues from one end of the region to the other are issues of war and peace. A number of these countries are dancing with death. They are on death's doorstep there. And they have no uh, assured means of being able to deter their adversaries, those who are adversarially inclined to what they seek uh, to achieve or what they represent. And at the personal human level, uh, the desire for the need, not the desire, the basic need, the demand, the expectation that any government worth its salt would at least provide the minimum of personal security. Otherwise, one has to leave home packing heat and looking over one shoulder. We, we cannot relate to this because it's not been the experience perhaps of anyone in this room unless she or he is a relatively recent immigrant from a country that had security but lost it. And thirdly is the issue of stability. Without stability, how can you plan? How can you protect? How can you anticipate? How can you prepare? How can you be effective? How can you look at yourself or your children or anyone else and say that you're doing the right thing at the right time in the right way with the, for the right reasons and the right results? Uh, these are the four, uh, uh, the three issues, and the fourth one has to do with people's material well-being, their standard of living, their cost of living, uh, the basic needs of, of, of shelter, of, of jobs, of employment, of uh, uh, access to affordable housing. Uh, I would venture that no one in this audience uh, fits that particular description where these things are absent uh, there. Uh, we have some uh, in the nation's capital this evening, some 13,000 people who are homeless. Tonight in New York City, there are 40,000 who are homeless, 20,000 of whom are children. And take those figures and put them beside Atlanta and St. Louis and Miami and Houston and Dallas and St. Louis and Minneapolis and Chicago and San Diego and Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland and, and San Francisco and you, you see what I'm talking about here. Or just take 270,000 American veterans who are homeless, uh, where arguably there should not be a single one who's homeless. So we don't hear about these things very often, or we don't read about them or to the degree that we do. We, we tend to pass them over and go on to another uh, subject as such. Uh, with regard to the... Uh, takeaway phrases or words that I would leave you with, uh, there are two that would explain the topsy-turvy, uh, accelerated, exaggerated, accentuated turmoil uh, since uh, the end of 2010 and, and for the most part nonstop in seven countries since 2011. One would be technology. That is to say, uh, if we can suspend judgment for a moment and try to project ourselves psychologically into the shoe-soul situations of people who are quite different, profoundly different from ourselves, and who are without uh, employment, they're jobless. 
And every day uh, they look in the mirror uh, to the degree they look in the mirror at all because many have given up hope completely uh, to wonder whether this day's interview is going to make a difference or whether this resume is going to be answered or this application form that was filled out uh, uh, and with all the I's dotted and the T's crossed is going to result in, a, in the request for an interview. Uh, this kind of hopelessness of despair, of uh, uh, despondency there. Uh, I'm not sure any of us can really relate to this at the drop of a hat here, uh, but we have to make the effort to try, uh, to think that, look, there's no one who really gives a damn about my need, and my need is a legitimate one. No one cares about my concerns. No one gives a damn about my interests. No one gives a damn about my aspirations. No one uh, will lift a finger to help me uh, pursue my goals. And all of which is legitimate. Nothing about it is illegitimate. Now, if one is of that persuasion and of that view, given what I just put my finger on, one word, technology, Let's just say that we're accurately describing all of the people in this room. And let's just say that each of us on average has 10 friends, acquaintances, people, neighbors, buddies, acquaintances, colleagues, loved ones, relatives, what have you. Within 45 minutes, we can get some 3,000 people right in front of the municipality of Baltimore. That's how easy it is. And we'd all be angry as could be. We're shaking our fist, uh, the veins and arteries in our neck are throbbing. We've had enough of it, we really have. And this is the case for Tunisia, for Libya, for Egypt, for Yemen, for Syria, for Iraq, for Bahrain, for Jordan, okay? Uh, we can see the whole region this way. Uh, and the media tends to focus on those, but not the others. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to say this so readily about Kuwait, about Qatar, about Saudi Arabia, about the Emirates, about Oman, etc. And there's a reason for this. And we can discuss this in the Q&A. Uh, so the technology makes it possible, and it's the first time ever that that has happened. You've had angry, despondent people despairing uh, since time immemorial. This is the first time I know in recorded human history where large numbers of people, almost anybody, can do something about it. And the powers that be are at a loss as to how to counter it, how to stop it, how to avoid it, how to prevent it, uh, how to defeat it there. So this is part of the region-wide challenge as sup in terms of ups and downs. And the second word to take away from this is a word that's not part of my vocabulary, but when I read about it, I know what it is, and it has to do with the phrase wannabe. Okay? Uh, when I went to undergraduate school, Dr. Baird was kind enough to make reference to the fact that I was elected uh, president of my class all four years. I got tired of it, frankly, because uh, I never ran. Um, 
<coughs> there, and um, I even demanded uh, that there be secret ballots, et cetera, et cetera, and still uh, won. But um, in my class, there were 42 individuals, 42 classmates who had been president of their senior class in their high schools or their student body. I'd never been any of those things there. And so of those 42 that an upstart got, uh, got won the election, that bothered a bunch of them. There, you could see it in their eyes. It was palpable, the body language, the chemistry for the all four years there. Uh, they would have given anything to trade places, to, uh, to, to be what I was privileged to be. Now, to the degree that that's a human phenomenon, uh, think of all of these countries and all of the people in the secondary schools in those countries who had class offices. They do in each and every one of the, these countries. They have student body elections as such. But you can have only one head of state, only one prime minister, only one foreign minister. Uh, combined with the technology and the sheer desire lets us have a chance. We only live but once. Now I'm 40, now I'm 50, now I'm 70, now I'm 80. Time is running out. Uh, now is my chance. And so there's this dynamic going on. And we are lulled into thinking, well, anybody is better than the ones who are there. And so we uh, have a knee-jerk tendency to support the dissidents, the demonstrators, the protesters, uh, the rebels, the guerrillas, the insurgents, whatever words you want to put on them there, without realizing uh, that this is what's at play. Th these are wannabes in many cases, and they have the technology, and they have the legitimacy of their grievances. This is a toxic, uh, combustible um, uh, mixture uh, that is a challenge for one regime after the another, from one end of the region after the other. That it has not happened in the case of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Emirates, and Oman yet uh, uh, is explainable by those governments, those societies having largely the means to address those needs of homelessness, of joblessness, of the absence of dignity, the absence of meaningful engagement, involvement, or participation in their societies. Uh, how much longer they'll have the means, uh, who can say? But I think for quite a long period of time, given their resources, given the world's needs. And so I mentioned a little bit about uh, the negative side of how we're perceived in the region and has so many continued to see as the single oldest, single biggest, single most pervasive uh, uh, issue that's haunting and daunting that constitutes America's Achilles heel being the unresolved uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue uh, is something to consider and to ponder in terms of its implications. It hurts us, hurts us, hurts us, hurts us. It also arguably hurts the Israelis and hurts Jews and hurts Christian evangelicals who are supportive of Israel, who are not Israelis and who are not Jews. Uh, it hurts Americans. It hurts Palestinians. It hurts Arabs. I would argue it hurts the entire world. And this issue has gone on in the eyes of just about everyone in the world except Americans except uh, the 
uh, right-wing government of the Israeli uh, Likudniks uh, there, and these are the only two exceptions. We cannot say we have been lobbied by our European friends, by our Asian friends, by our Latin American or African friends, or even adversaries to have the policies that we have. So this is not something we cannot blame on, our, on others. This is a self-inflicted wound here, uh, there. It's one thing to uh, shoot oneself in one's foot, but on the altar, what does one have to reload faster uh, than anybody else? And so this region will uh, continue to uh, remain relevant and remain important and remain uh, something of more than just uh, academic, scholarly, intellectual interest. Uh, it's in the DNA, I think, of most of our bones. Uh, this uh, region uh, is the uh, cornerstone and the intersection of three continents, Africa, Asia, and uh, Europe, no other part of the world is. It's uh, thereby constituted some days as the traffic jam of the devout. Um, it's the uh, cradle of culture, as Westerners know the origins of culture. It's the crucible of civilizations, as Westerners uh, know the crucible of civilizations there. It's the birthplace of the world's three monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There, it's the uh, epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage, of faith, and sp of faith and spiritual devotion for fully one quarter of humanity there. Uh, and in spite of all of the tension and all of the uh, implied negative uh, uh, consequences of our uh, policies and positions, and our failure to, to act in a statesman-like uh, way, regardless of whether it's Republican or, or Democratic, one administration after the other, we still have going for us the following, that we are seen as number one and necessary in terms of research and development. No country comes remotely close to putting as much uh, money into research and development uh, that is not confined to the benefit of Americans, but to the world as, as a whole, and to the beneficiaries of science and technology. And the patents that, that go with these uh, breakthroughs uh, to which others are beholden uh, to, to re respect and abide by. Uh, no country has as many uh, people lining up for visas uh, to apply to its educational institutions. We have some 2,800 uh, universities uh, from one part of America to the other. We have an alumnus and uh, 800 of those 2,800 there. No country comes remotely close to the military uh, research and development and prowess and ability to be credible uh, with regard to protecting others uh, who are threatened, who are intimidated, who, who stand otherwise uh, to be attacked by their larger, more avaricious uh, neighbors there. And no country is seen as having, by and large, a fair record of, uh, of decency in terms of fair play. Uh, we have specific legislation that prevents us from getting into the kinds of corrupt uh, sales for military hardware and other uh, goods and services that, uh, say, is the case in France or Great Britain or Russia or China as such. And so we still represent uh, the, the greatest hope 
and promise and potential and probability uh, for most, the overwhelming majority of the peoples in the region, except for the policies. There is no anti-Finland in the world. There is no anti-Estonia, anti-Lithuania, anti-Denmark in the world. Uh, that there is anti-Americanism from one end of the region to the other uh, exists, and it really is our own fault. Uh, now, I've given you a broad brushstroke. Why don't I stop here? I've given you negatives. I've given you positives there, and you can have at me. I don't have any ego hang-up on any of these things. There's uh, a degree of masochism, so go ahead. <laughs> I'd like, to, if I could, to try to take maybe three questions at a time in order to allow more questions to be asked and to provide an uh, objective discipline to my tongue in response. Uh, yes, in the back, far back, sir. Uh, let me take those three and then maybe they will generate in the absence of others uh, some more questions there. Uh, how might I change American policy? Um, uh, as, as follows, but admittedly I'm stating the ideal, stating a dream, stating a vision, uh, but realities uh, can and often do ensue from the prefatory dreams and then the visions and then the implementations there. Um, the President of the United States in his role as Commander-in-Chief and looking out to defend the United States of America and protect the legitimate interest of the American people could start as of tomorrow morning saying, um, I hereby declare an immediate suspension of all American economic assistance uh, to the protagonist of uh, this largest unresolved conflict uh, that constitutes an ongoing burden uh, to the people of Israel uh, to be relieved of their occupation, to be relieved of the wishes for territorial further expansion, uh, to allow the Palestinians to become citizens for the first time again since World War II, and to relieve the American people of, of a burden that is unconscionable and that uh, ought not, by any frame of reference or standard of argumentation, uh, to be allowed to continue indefinitely. Uh, and uh, people would say, well, my gosh, you can't do that. Well, of course he can do it. And people would say, well, it would be against the law. Well, we're seen as the Olympic champion of, uh, uh, of law violations uh, on this issue up to this point. Okay. And others would say, well, that, that's an impeachable offense. Let it be an impeachable offense, okay? And let the, the head of state of the world's most uh, powerful country that has been involved in this issue up to its ears and beyond, uh, let the head of state uh, be impeached, okay? Uh, this is his second term. He's got dwindling political capital as it is. He cannot run for re-election. Um, 
most heads of state, so we read, uh, want to go down in history uh, seen as having made a difference in her or his uh, lifetime. Uh, here we're calling for an act of statesmanship. <clears throat> here we're talking for an act of leadership. Here we're talking about an act of moral conviction and commitment there, of living up uh, to the best of America's ideals and liberating all three peoples there, not unlike uh, Abraham Lincoln in the aftermath of the battle less than an hour's drive from here after Antietam and the emancipation of the slaves, a, a declaration of 1863. Uh, that was a game changer. Uh, it fundamentally uh, changed the dynamics of something that up until that point seemed to have no end. Uh, this has never been done before. Um, this would immediately take much of the wind out of the sails of Hamas, of Hezbollah, of Islamic Jihad, of the Muslim Brothers, uh, of Iran, of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and it would be in accord with what is largely the entire rest of the world's wishes uh, that the United States would take such a principled, courageous, effective stance, okay? With regard to um, uh, uh, retirees and, and hubris, yes. Uh, hubris is a big part of it. And um, it may have happened anyway, but it certainly was given a boost or shot in the arm when the Cold War ended because we could step back and be emotional and objective and say, my God, we won. Um, uh, communism is dead. Uh, capitalism and the free markets uh, are, have, have won, and they've survived, and we have no challenger. This is the first time in America's history that this has ever been the case. And so we, we want to prolong the American century as best we can. Uh, but along with that good luck and good results uh, came the perhaps inevitable degree of arrogance there. Uh, and arrogance doesn't work where well anywhere. If you're sitting next this evening to someone who's arrogant, I can understand if you'd like to move away uh, there. Uh, so at the international level, um, it's abhorrent. It's, it's vomit material. It really is an unbecoming of, of, of a great power. As I said, we killed a country. Uh, we, we did it to a country that represented no threat to us, that um, uh, we were the ones uh, that were in violation of international law. And uh, Iraq's population then was 24 million, uh, some four million, one-sixth were uprooted, two million became external refugees, two million displaced at home. That's one-sixth of Iraq's population. In American equivalency terms, that would be 55 million Americans made refugees as a result of an illegal invasion and occupation of the United States. Um, and if that's not hub hubris, uh, that we uh, were right to do what we did, um, I, I don't know what is as such. Uh, with regard to uh, Syria and Afghanistan, one can point uh, fingers there as well in terms of hubris. Um, the reason that there is no uh, anti-other uh, country to anywhere remotely the degree that there is to the United States 
And by the way, France and Great Britain and Russia and China are great powers. But there is no anti-France, anti-Great Britain, anti-Russia, anti-China in this particular region. It is only anti-Americanism. And the hubris part has a lot to do with it. Or hypocrisy, or double standards, or moral audacity, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, with regard to the Arab winter uh, or spring, or <laughs> pick your seasons, they're uh, uh, having nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, you're absolutely right. It had to do with the, the reasons I tried to enumerate, despair, despondency, uh, uh, an inability. To, if you cannot uh, bring home a paycheck, who the hell is going to marry you? Okay? Uh, how are you going to have access to affordable or even unaffordable housing uh, there? Where's the dignity in this? Where's the decency in that? Uh, and so if we can put, project ourselves into those kinds of issues, I'd be angry as hell, too. Uh, I'm not sure if I would be the first uh, in front of the municipality, but I'd certainly be one of those uh, that want it to be and would give it serious and favorable consideration uh, because I would have thought enough is enough is enough uh, there. So uh, you're right. Uh, uh, but Egypt uh, is in some ways a train that's left the station. Uh, Egypt, when power was defined primarily in terms of population, uh, Egypt would have had it hands down because Egypt's population is pushing 90 million. That's four times the uh, population of, uh, of Iraq. That's four times the population of Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman combined. And yet Idris' phone calls are not necessarily returned with a degree of rapidity, uh, predictability, as was the case 50 years ago. Um, because it's not just population anymore. Uh, Egypt has become an economic basket case there. But at the same time, it muddles through as it has for 6,000 years. Uh, Egypt, in some ways, is a policeman's dream in direct opposition to Syria, in direct opposition to Iraq. Iraq was difficult enough. Syria was about 10 times as difficult as Iraq. But Egypt, 96% of the population lives on 4% of the land. It would be as though in the United States, 96% of America's 315 million people lived on the banks of the Mississippi. Uh, we would not have the rights. We wouldn't have the freedoms. We wouldn't have the benefits, the privileges, the positions, the luxuries uh, uh, that we have. We're one of six remaining countries on the planet that still has lots of potential, lots of room to grow. We have not reached our limits. Uh, we're, uh, there are only five others like us. And for the hubris thing again, for us to think that, well, others should be like us, could be like us, if they just hustled, if they got their act together, I think that this is rather cruel on top of being ignorant and arrogant. It's like looking at a person in a wheelchair and say, look, goddammit, you can walk. It's, it's all in your mind. Uh, you know, you, you just got to put your will to it. Uh, the, the, there are inabilities of most other countries to have the green fields and the mountains and the valleys and the streams and the renewable resources and the vast open spaces that we still have. Uh, there are only five others like us there. So for, to try to make others over like ourselves, one is not po possible or probable, and two, the effort and the sincerity behind the effort of people who think 
just give us enough time and resources and we'll prevail, to me is arrogance and ignorance uh, combined there. Other questions, please. Yes, sir. Uh, the question is, how can you have a two-state uh, solution when you have um, a party like Hamas that today is saying that would, it would never recognize uh, Israel, correct there? In the same way that we um, ended the Vietnam crisis because the government of South Vietnam that we supported to the hilt never once, uh, I mean, excuse me, that the uh, Viet Cong and the, and the North Vietnamese never once recognized the right of the government of South Vietnam uh, uh, to exist. Had we stood on that principle, we would still be there today. The 58,000 names engraved in the memorial on uh, the Washington Mall would be multiplied ad infinitum many times more. The 1.3 Vietnamese that uh, we killed in the process would be multiplied many times more. You don't uh, make peace uh, with your friends. You make peace with your enemies and your adversaries. We met with the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese for months on end in Paris until uh, we came to a peaceful settlement of that particular conflict. All the others have been resolved that way too, including the fact that we sit here, stand here as free and independent people from October the 18th, 1781 in General John O'Hara and Alexander Hamilton in Yorktown uh, when uh, the British finally agreed to talk with those uh, who would not otherwise lay down their arms. That's what ended it not insisting on this rhetorical formula and this uh, uh, rhetorical uh, uh, cascade of words. Uh, that's, that's a distraction. It's uh, an excuse for delay it, and for obfuscation. Uh, it just is like an old southern dog that won't hunt anymore. <laughs> If you're disappointed that we're ending, I, I had the opportunity to read the other five titles which Dr. Anthony presented, and so I'm more disappointed than any of you. Uh, he's always interesting and uh, wise, I believe, and uh, not always uh, in the mainstream, but always straightforward and I think uh, direct and to the point. It's been a marvelous evening. We thank you once again.